Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Screen Talk, a New Wars weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. And we're doing away with Zoom backgrounds this week because there's just too much stuff to talk about. We can't distill it to one movie. We've got AFI Fest going on. We've got a Doc NYC lineup going on. It's kind of nice that we're actually in a fall festival season with a lot of different things worth up. A few months ago, I think there was this real anxiety, right, that we might not have enough to talk about this season, but I'm not finding any shortage of stories, are you? No, I mean, the, the point is, is that things are changing every minute and you don't know what each of these different outfits is going to do, you know? I mean, one is virtual, one is hybrid, one is local, you know? Um, for example, Doc NYC, they decide they're going to announce their shortlist in November. So, and my new earbuds, which are so fashionable and fabulous, keep falling out of my ears. <laughs> if that's the most unpredictable thing you have to deal with these days, you're in pretty good shape three weeks out from the election. So, you know, one step at a time here. But it's true, the festival season, has it's like things keep shifting, you know, but at the same time, there is a sense of predictability. You know, we got through New York Film Festival. Now we're into AFI Fest. And it's going to be an interesting experience going through it because usually AFI Fest is the kind of place that might launch some of the really big kind of surprises of award season, you know, to have, uh, Selma launched there. I remember a few years ago, or, or American Sniper. I think both of those within a 48 hour period, actually, that was pretty significant after all of the TIFF stuff. And this yeah, year, and it's, it doesn't feel that way. No, we might have wondered if, if Spielberg would have would have put West Side. He did Lincoln at AFI Fest. It's the local surviving Los Angeles Film Festival now that LAFF is gone. And they made this strange decision to push it up to October. And then when the actual uh, pandemic arrived and they had to deal with uh, what choices to make, they decided to keep it in October. And the reason they did it was just to piggyback on all that talent and all the people that were moving around doing uh, appearances for all the different festivals that already existed in the fall. And they didn't take that late November slot that they used to have, which I think, you know, this would have been the one year to move the festival back, but mm -hmm. not, uh, not a good idea, apparently. Well, though it should be. And they leaned into be... docks this year, yeah. which, which is really interesting. I mean, it does feel like it's a festival lineup with a wide range of movies that people might want to see, even if they're not the hottest titles all across the board. And it's a virtual festival that people can watch all around the country, right? So yeah, there's like something to that. We're from California, which is sort of shocking for what was uh, a local festival. And I, um, Eric, didn't you get some stats from Eugene uh, Hernandez at NYFF that they actually made some money on, on we the don't, We sales? don't know all the details yet, but it's looking promising. There was a panel for New York Film Festival that I was on where, where our pal Eugene said that the, their early numbers were very encouraging. And frankly, if that's true, I'm not surprised because if you think about it, you're programming for a national audience the same way that they might watch something on Netflix or Criterion Channel. Well, now you can also watch a 
you know, a major movie. You just have to adapt to these windows. It's, it's like, it's like a combination of the streaming universe and appointment viewing that people, you know, adhered to on TV for decades. So it's a different kind of process, but people seem to be adjusting, or at least the, the traditional festival audiences. I'll be curious to see how long that lasts and how it evolves as we see more examples. But AFI Fest is certainly a, a substantial one to go that so, that route. So Eric, um, I've seen the Closing Night movie, which is Errol Morris's um, My Psychedelic Love Story, which I loved. And it's it's about uh, Timothy Leary and his, his jet setter girlfriend, uh, jo Joanna. But but uh, you should, um, I can't go into it in detail because it's embargoed still, but um, you tell us about the opening night movie, Julia Hart's I'm Your Woman. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait to see the, the Errol Morris stuff, but I did get to see the opening film and uh, I liked it quite a bit. I thought it was really strong. It's not your traditional kind of flashy opening night film, I suppose, because it's it's a sort of smaller, low budget thriller of sorts, but Rachel Brosnahan really carries it through. She's in every scene. Julia Hart is a really interesting filmmaker. Going back to that breakout screenplay she wrote, The Keeping Room, the way that she constructs, you know, women in a men's world who have to kind of resort to violence and and taking a, a kind of initiative that only becomes apparent to them over the course of of a, a journey they have to go on it's a very interesting motif and in fast color she continued that and so I, I was i was really fascinated to see how well she she kind of pulled it off here you know the, the movie once you get through i don't want to spoil a lot of it when you when you get the full picture of it there is a kind of formulaic aspect to it uh it's it's a it's a crime caper of sorts about a woman married to uh, some kind of guy doing shady stuff. And when he vanishes with their and she's left with their adopted infant, she goes on the lamb and, and meets various people along the way. But it's, um, it's got this eerie, disquieting quality to it where she's constantly trying to figure out what's happening around her. And at first is terrified and over the course of the movie becomes more and more courageous. And then, you know, more sort of leading the charge to, see to set it. things right. I'm going to see it at the opening night it's, tonight. So I'm, it's I'm a good, yeah. And it's it. a good, I, I, you should, because I, I think it's a good opening night choice in the sense that I could have seen it in an audience in a, as a crowd pleaser, you know, there's some good applause moments and stuff, but it's also, it will work on the small screen. It's a small, it's a more contained drama. So it is in that. And I think it benefits from this year and in, in, in a weird year. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to speculate about awards as, as much as you will with a film like this. I wouldn't say that it, it's, it's, you know, a big contender, but we, I don't know what the best actress field is going to look like in a couple of I'm months. I'm hearing good things about Rachel Brosnahan, you know, who Got of course is an Emmy winner. So, so for uh, yep. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And this is nothing it. like that. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's the opposite <laughs> of that kind of performance. So that's kind of cool to see that. And, uh, and I guess we'll see the way the rest of the, the AFI stuff goes. It doesn't seem like there's uh, quite as much, um, you know, event movies this year, but I'm all about being surprised and I, and I can't wait to see how audiences respond to some of the stuff that we've already seen elsewhere. I did see the Belushi documentary that RJ Cutler directed, which is there and airing on Showtime in a few weeks. I thought it was very, a very solid look at, uh, you know, the sort of tragedy of his career. So, and there's a, there's a Ronald Reagan miniseries. Uh, Matt Turnour. Yeah, yeah. Matt Turnour, who did Valentino and all that stuff. He that made that really during the pandemic. He actually finished it. Which is always cool to see. Yeah, I mean, it's always cool to see at this stage of the game what, what kind of made it through. 
to the finish line. So of course, and I'm excited because like I'm going to sit down with Mara Nair, which uh, who's one of my favorite filmmakers. I've been following her since the beginning of Salon Bombay and Mississippi Masala and Monsoon Wedding. I'm, I'm a big fan of hers and we're going to do a tribute talk. Uh, so that'll That's be very this cool. weekend. That's very cool. And so in, in addition to AFI stuff upcoming, one of the updates we got this week in terms of major fall stuff to look ahead to is Seoul, which in spite of everything, you know, after we recorded last week, we found out that Disney was going to take it to Disney Plus and not do a theatrical push, which, you know, isn't all that surprising. Although, you know, in the, in the context of a, of a major Pixar release with awards potential, it is dramatic. But then in spite of everything, it still got a premiere in London. So, you know, the first reviews broke out of London. We had a freelancer review it out of there. And to the surprise to absolutely no one I've talked to, they've been through the roof, incredibly emphatic. No idea when we're going to get a chance to see this movie, but personally, I, I definitely want to see it. And uh, unfortunately, it's the big studios that refuse to give you screener links and wait. They wait. They're all waiting. They're yet to show us Tenet in L.A. You have to go out of L.A. to, to see Tenet. I did go to a drive-in, which was horrible. But um, I will say this. Wait, wait. Soul the drive-in was horrible or Tenet was horrible? Tenet was not supposed to be seen at a drive-in okay, at a, pa okay. a postage I seen stamp it I just wanted to clarify. screen. Now I drove. I drove out. I literally drove away and ruined it for everyone else because I couldn't handle it. I had to. I want to see Tenet in all its glory. It's not. A, it's not fair to Christopher Nolan to see Tenet in a drive-in. That's like a. It's. Oh. It's like. It's. 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 A, it's, a, it's a scandal. Fairness um, is a anyway. weird term for 2020. Let's go back to Soul. Uh, so Soul. What I want to say about Soul, Tenet is one of the few movies that's going to be in the Oscar race in, on some level, probably mostly tech categories, but it, it's a big scale Hollywood movie. And so is Soul. And what's really weird about what's going on is it, it can open on Disney Plus on December 25th and get, get the home audience that's still going to be hunkered down, uh, the families um, watching. And it, 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 they're basically following up the success of Hamilton, you know, which was so big on Disney Plus. And they're not following the Mulan paradigm, which presumably didn't make them as much money, the PVOD idea, uh, expensive as as this would in terms of bringing in lots of people uh to the to the to the portal so, so me, what, what they're going to do is make it into a huge oscar contender and it will be as the a, one with scale and good. scope good i mean i think that's that's exciting and, and i hope it turns out to to be worth that kind of hype but i think it i would posit to you maybe quality is informing decisions here just the, just a little bit because if you think about, I mean, Tenet and Mulan, very different kinds of case studies. And maybe Mulan didn't perform as well as they would like. But also, neither Tenet nor Mulan were universally beloved. Across the board, these were not, whether you're talking about audiences or critics, these are not movies that have been widely embraced, right? It's hard to measure, Eric. Movie, I'm sure they I, both I, would have done much better in theaters if all the theaters yeah. were open all over the world. Yeah. But even on streaming to some extent, but Eric, I, I Eric, would say. Movies like Tenet and Mulan don't have to be liked by critics to do well. This is an age old argument of the, the whole critic proof kind of thing, but maybe that's true, but maybe they could do better if people, I mean, it's not just about critics, it's about word of mouth. 
you know, word of mouth can still count for something too. If your life is on the line and you are uh, facing the possibility of getting COVID, maybe you don't go see Tenet in the theater. Right, right. Well, I know that that was the main thing that worked against it, but I'm just saying whether it's Tenet or Mulan, there is also an argument to be made that if these movies were, were, were more widely embraced, perhaps they would have performed well in their respective venues. And if and I perhaps- think, I mean, we don't know. I mean, the, the point with Mulan, a, we don't know what the numbers are. B, you know, this is a new platform. They have X number of subscribers. Were you really going to step up and spend like 30 bucks to to to, to see it Me right enough. away? When I mean, you know family, that it's going to be free. It's going to be free in December. Wait, wait yeah. until December. Also, Everybody will see Mulan. They just, it didn't work as a, it was an experiment. I, I guess so, but I'm just saying nobody was saying it's the movie event of the fall either. So for whatever that's worth, Eric, you are never the target something. audience for Mulan. I know, I know, but I but I still think quality can match. Let, let's see what I, let's pivot to something else that I think is relevant here. Disney has made this announcement that I think is very much significant in in the wider context of the sole release, which is that it's all one division for. Basically, they're in the streaming business now because it's the one thing that's working. This seems like something that will become more and more of sort of a dramatic development with time, right? Because it means that we don't know what this means for Marvel or anything like that. But Disney is not in the temple business anymore, as far as we can tell. I mean, how did you read that? All right. So one of the things that at the very beginning of all of this, I was wondering was, you know, if we lose 10,000 theaters and all these companies go bankrupt, which which they're in the process of, of doing, are the studios going to be able to afford, is there going to be a financial calculus that allows them to make $200 million movies and expect to make their money back in theaters? And they're having to really turn their heads around and think the Netflix way. I mean, Netflix spends billions of dollars and incurs a lot of debt, you know, to get people to come to their site because they're constantly churning more and more and more content. And none of the new, um, you know, uh, streaming platforms like Disney Plus or HBO Max are really coming up with that much new original product on the level of a Netflix. And so they have to think about it. How much are they going to spend to get those subscribers to, to come and, and look at their content? And, and, and what is their calculus for when they make money? They were used to making money back in theaters, real cash, hard cash. Cash with this yeah. other Windows formula behind them, and now they have to refigure it out. No marketing, I mean, not as much marketing, not as much cost in terms of of, of putting it out. It, it, it's a different calculus. I mean, I think one of the things that's significant here is that Disney likes generally to spend a lot of money on its most valuable properties, and, and Netflix often doesn't. I mean, it spends a lot of money all across the board, but it sprinkles it widely. And I don't know, last night I was I, I spent some time on Netflix. I watched an interview that David Letterman did with Lizzo, which was really fun. And I watched the David Attenborough documentary, both of which, you know, they, neither of which were masterpieces. And this gets beyond the kind of Netflix conversation we're usually having about the awards hopefuls. But neither one of those movies seemed like it was an especially costly undertaking. One was basically based around one interview with uh, David Attenborough and then a lot of edited stuff. And then the other was David Letterman having a conversation. And I think that's something that's going to be interesting to see as people try to, as Disney tries to crack the Netflix equation, is how can it deliver that kind of content that is you know, easy to tune into and a, speaks to a wider array of tastes, but doesn't have to be you know, a big event kind of a thing. 
I mean, that's, well, that's that the other thing. Like if the studios are willing to leave the the event movie business and and stop thinking in tentpole terms, which was always sort of bad for movies anyway, um, they can go back to making a wider range of, and take way more risks and do really fun things, and 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 then decide what what the real best way is for them to make their money back. And I think that's a really good idea, actually. The part that's sad, the part that I find really distressing is that the theaters are being left out in the cold, which is partly their own fault because they didn't see the writing on the wall well enough to recognize how they should pivot in order to be in sync with the studios as partners instead of at odds with the studios, yeah. uh, which is why they're left hanging now. It's a real, uh, the tragedy of all of this in a way, it's, I mean, exhibition may have been in danger long before the pandemic came along, but this was the ultimate moment to sort of the try to reverse case course. scenario. Yeah. Yeah. They just, I mean, people are going to be assessing this business case for, for decades. And we I don't still know think the there's going to be, like. absolutely. And I still think there's going to be theaters left, you know, they're going to be survivors. Cinemark is a strong chain. Uh, I, I think uh, Tim League and Alamo will have some theaters left standing, but uh, it's going to be uh, rough to watch. I, I find it painful, honestly, to watch. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think that, again, I, I've said it before, but I think the art houses have the most to gain from this situation when it comes to building back. Because when you're building back for a community on a smaller scale, you have more room to experiment. You're not necessarily, you, you don't have the same kind of bottom line anxieties. I mean, it's, it's hard business, but it's a different kind of a thing. And so I, that ecosystem to me is has a real opportunity to try to figure out how to survive this in a way that the exhibition world, I just don't know what, their options are going to be. It's the big the theater timeline. chains. Yeah, it's the big theater chains that were over leveraged and kept buying more chains and all of that. So all of that's going to sort of unravel and and devolve, and it's really going to be Darwinian. It'll be the strongest that survived. You know, me, meanwhile, Sundance just sent out its call for press accreditation, and, and people are buying industry passes starting this week. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see how all that comes together. As you know, so much has changed since we had. Tabitha and Carrie on the podcast to talk about the way they were evaluating so, their options. So what I'm hearing through the grapevine and they haven't, you know, announced it yet is, is that they're basically going to be putting things up in various cities around the country, uh, different kinds of drive-in opportunities. So they're taking it national. There are, there will be on the ground, uh, uh, events, even if they're drive-ins or outdoors, even if it's chilly, <laughs> I don't see how they do it in the cold. Lots of heat lamps. I mean, we'll see. I, 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 we're already talking about what the situation is going to be like for restaurants here in New York with, with uh, you know, we have indoor dining, but it's 25%, which for a lot of places is nothing. You may as well not have it. And, and a lot of people don't want to dine indoors anyway. So they're starting to set up these little outdoor kind of tents where you're still kind of outside, but it covers you up and they have heat lamps. But if you're talking about like a larger group of people, you have limited options when you, when there's a big screen involved and all that kind of stuff. So I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation, but the main thing that I think is sort of the takeaway from what Sundance is doing now is that they're basically messaging the same thing that Toronto did in, in you know, when we got closer to that festival was, which was do not expect this to be a physical experience as a member of the press and industry. It's a virtual no, festival. We're stuck where standpoint. we are and we'll have local yeah. events of some kind. Yeah. And I, and I think that it's worth pointing out that Sundance usually at the top of the year often sets the stage for the narrative of the industry, at least on the indie side of things. So it's, you know, I think that 
that will be fascinating to follow because it will probably see a 2021 that will have a lot more virtual cinema type stuff, at least for a while. I mean, we're not going to see a, you know, 20, you know, happy new year. Let's go back to movie theaters kind of situation, I think. So that's going to be an interesting kind of thing to, um, to sort out in other pandemic related news. There was uh, a new Alex Gibney doc that you and I both saw and, and you spoke to him about. And, uh, and I think we should get into that because totally under control, which is now available is uh, probably the, the most. It's on multi-platforms. In other words, Amazon, yeah, iTunes, you can pay for it. Yeah. Before you can it goes get it to Hulu me. and it's in yeah. some several theaters. And, and Neon's website, you can, you can get it there, but it, but yeah. it's, uh, it is the most immediate response to the American, uh, uh, story of the coronavirus. There have been films about, uh, China. There was a documentary at TIFF that MTV just picked up, cut 76 days. And there was a coronation from my way away, but this is the first one, as far as I know, it's a feature length uh, film about the response. The New York the Times government. did a sort of op doc thing where they laid they laid out a mm. timeline, but this is a real movie. And Alex Gibney, you know, just at the start of the pandemic, he went to Tom Quinn, his old bud from Magnolia, who did Smartest Guys in, in the Room, you know, and he he actually got some backing and he went forward and he he did the, the movie uh, under duress. He had to get his editors going right away um, and he got two other uh, directors to help him out and and they they did it. They, they, they went and interviewed people and either remotely or they got Airbnbs and set up the cameras and covered them with shower curtains. It's all very transparent. That's kind of part of it. He calls it the, the COVID movie. cam. It's the COVID cam. He calls like it the, the COVID cam, it, yeah. I mean, it, it is well, kind of like what Errol Morris did with his thing, the Interatron, where it's like, because you see it sometimes from afar, it's like the person you're talking to. It is an Interatron, like, basically. Yeah, you're, their, their face is like on the camera but lens. But they're so putting the their faces, right yeah, they're, sh they're shooting their faces remotely into the Interatron. Right, right, right. They got to do all that stuff themselves. It's very interesting in that respect to... Um, to figure out how this is all going to play out in terms of filmmaking during a pandemic. I mean, as you pointed out in your story, Gibney has a bit of a factory with Jigsaw. And uh, one of the things that I think is notable is that uh, he's got another movie that he's producing that might Matt Heineman seems to be trying to get into Sundance now. That's like a verite thing shot in New York hospitals about the coronavirus. So they so, put on uh, all the rig and, and all that. Matt Heineman, as you know, nominated for Cartel Land. Uh, you know, uh, he did a Syria doc. He's willing to put himself in danger at any opportunity. So he's the guy who's gonna face up to COVID in the hospital with, with, his, with his camera crew. And they all seem to have come out okay. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that at Sundance. I'm sure he's, he's furiously is the word Alex used yeah. for how he's editing it. But Alex is, you know, he did this Agents of Chaos thing on, on HBO, which he finished over the summer, uh, which is also d distressing, which is but basically focusing on the Russian interference in the 2016 um, election. And then he has um, this other movie called Crazy Not Insane, which is about a forensic psychiatrist who diagnoses serial killers uh, as as with multiple personality disorders. And you see the video of her talking to them. It's it's a great movie, too. So he, he, that was supposed to come out a long time ago. And somehow, because of, of COVID, all of his movies are coming out at once. Well, I mean, he's always cranking stuff out. He's got a huge crew of people working under him on research and, and posts and all that kind of stuff. It's a unique kind of situation. But uh, in this season, I think it is worth asking because it's been a while since an Alex Gibney movie 
won the Oscar, much less got nominated. Taxi to the Dark Side was a while back there. Any of these really contenders? Well, I think Totally Under Control is the one, but the the trick there, um, honestly, watching the movie, having just lived it, right? I mean, we all went through this and we're still going through it and it isn't getting any better. And it's very, very, very disturbing to go through the timeline and see exactly what we didn't do to fight COVID. And there's this one month period where uh, President Trump wanted to slow down the testing. He did it on purpose. He did it because he didn't want the numbers to come out. And that one month was the month we could have contained it and taken care of it the way all the other countries did. I know there's spikes now, but we wouldn't yeah, have the death toll that we I, have now. I think that, I mean, the thing is, we kind of knew that and he's got the, the he even worked in the Bob Woodward interview that came out that showed that Trump knew that towards the end. One of the things that stood out to me was that the documentary kind of, it does consolidate a lot of stuff that's been out there, but it, it covers so many different ways. So it's just such a condemnation of every level. I mean, this thing about Jared Kushner being in charge that's of a That's the reveal. That's the stuff we don't know. Right. So Kushner was in charge of, of getting PPE and it was staffed all by volunteer, volunteers. volunteers. They thought they'd be the helping a team, but they were the team. And then they had to email from their private accounts to, and they didn't get anything. They I mean, didn't do anything. Stuff, I think is the worst. And the, that, and I mean, and, and he so... then let private enterprise get into it. And it, but but the, what it, what he revealed is that this was a, an administration full of people. A the people that were in charge of all of these things were terrible, and they were enabling him. The, B they didn't believe in government. They didn't believe in government. They didn't care. They thought that private enterprise should handle these things. This is the one thing, a pandemic, that we were set up to handle as a government, and they dismantled everything. Right. So the movie's worth watching, I think, uh, to explain that. And it's getting me riled up again. <laughs> but, I, but I do think it's important because it's like, I don't know. I mean, in, there are some cases where stuff like this comes along, and, and, and the first reaction is like, why would I want to? see that I lived through the implications of it or whatever. But I do think now of all times, it's important for people to be informed about yeah, he rushed it the through to get it done by the election. Right? Yeah, that's the point. Right. Because yeah. I mean, let's be clear, you, me, Alex, Gibney, none of us were voting for Trump anyway. But this situation is probably uh, a, a, a valuable kind of embodiment of why somebody like that shouldn't be in charge setting aside the, the buffoonery and, and, you know, just how immoral this person is and all that kind of stuff. It's just the mismanagement of it. It's so clear. You look at the way they handled H1N1. I'd seen totally con under control before the VP debates when, and during the VP debates, Mike Pence tried to use the U S H1N1 response as some, as a way to sort of dump on the, the Obama administration. And I was like, okay, they responded to that by creating a pandemic task force that John Bolton under the Trump administration got rid of. So, you know, let's let's be clear about this. I mean, you need to watch these kinds of things when they come along to understand the kind of manipulation that's coming from the other side. So it's not a masterpiece, but I'm glad that it exists and I hope people uh, check it out. Um, so another documentary news, we've got the Doc NYC lineup, but as you said earlier, uh, there's no short list. So we don't yet know what kind of role Doc NYC is going to play in the Oscar conversation, uh, but it's a virtual festival. So presumably 
this will also widen the awareness of docs, even given just how robust the, the program is. I mean, what did you think of that, of, of, uh, of what we got so far from it? Well, they they laid it out. They they have uh, you know something like the dissident is which is Brian Fogel's look at Khashoggi, the murder of Khashoggi um, by the Syrians uh, in, but uh, I mean Saudi Arabians in um, in Turkey, and then he has um, uh, so that's a that's a contender, uh, but he's got it in this sort of investigative uh, context. And then uh, he's got totally under control um, in there. Uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful lineup. And uh, he's not going to do the the uh, thing that everyone in the industry looks for, uh, the shortlist until, until November. And I almost, I was looking at the lineup and I was thinking how challenging and difficult it would be to create that list this year, because I have one. I have a list of 15 on my uh, predictions chart um, and I'm constantly moving it around uh, based yeah. on different things I'm seeing and how things are moving forward. But it's the most robust, extraordinarily long list of films I've ever seen. And, uh, well, you know, we love Gunda. You and I both love Gunda. We both. That'll love- be a cool one to see on there for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no question there. There are a lot, a lot of good docs this year. I wonder how that list will evolve in the months ahead, given the extended eligibility window and the fact that people are making furiously editing things. No, there's now. a lot of new movies coming into like the, you know, the Errol Morris or, or, um, you know, that's a new one. 76 days, as you said, just got picked up by MTV. Sheila Nevins loves it. She's going to push it. Um, right. You know, that's the one shot in Wuhan. Uh, there's a lot of, of stuff coming uh, still. And, you know, it's, it, so you weigh, you, you look, something like Dick Johnson is dead is sort of, stunning on so many different fronts cinematography editing conception storytelling daring narration daring innovation it, it is and it's moving and it's heartfelt and it's personal so you could see something like that really going the distance gunda has a packs a punch as well i gave up pork immediately <laughs> but but that's you know a, it's, it's you've already about. been uh, a, a non-meat eater eric i know yeah, it didn't take much for me, but that would be a cool one. That's almost like a Honeyland type of uh, slot in the sense that it's it, it's something the doc community will widely embrace and kind of push forward on some level. And there's, uh, don't forget there's, about um, MLK FBI. That's another one that I think. No, I still have to see that one. It's on my list for sure. Um, the other one uh, that I hope comes back into the conversation is The Painter and the Thief, which I wrote about a while ago. Welcome to Chechnya, I wrote about a while ago. Those are those are movies that need to come back into into the conversation um and they're they're both uh well worth looking at um if you can uh there's just such a long list it's it's extraordinary and he's showing the the julia um reichert movie um yeah nine to five nine to five right so yeah that's coming that's one that a lot of people haven't seen it only showed at uh, afi fest as far as i know yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of cool talking about AFI Fest at the start of this podcast and then moving into Doc NYC and the lineups feel complimentary. But again, these are experiences that people, at least in the U.S., can have in their living rooms this year. So it's like the the concept of the film festival circuit being this, you know, kind of complimentary ecosystem is something that more people can experience and presumably have more of a voice in the conversation. I hope that happens. I hope that as you and I continue to talk about award season and some of these late entries and stuff, that there's going to be more people who actually know what we're talking about. Because a lot of times these movies are sort of like 
hypotheticals and then they come out little by little. So I, it'll be interesting to see how the kind of the, the national festival audience could, you know, have a say or at least be a little bit more aware of this developing narrative. You know, it's a, we don't we don't know where certain things are going to reappear and stuff. And, and the Netflix aspect of it is going to be a whole new factor as well, because it's sort of running alongside the festival circuit and then overlapping with certain events and things like that. So I was looking at the doc race, because if you think that Netflix had like six of them or uh, at Sundance, um, they, they, they're not all going to make it into, into the final list. You know, Netflix can't have all the doc slots. Uh, so there's, there's all sorts of weird politics going on in terms of, you know, there's got to yeah. be, you know, a neon or an HBO or, you know, they've got to spread the love around, but yeah. I bet there will I be more Netflix stocks than anything else. I, I mean, we got to look at what, what Netflix is doing with the festivals without showing movies there. Like for example, Netflix is, a, is sponsoring a kind of a virtual road trip thing with doc NYC. So they're obviously making sure that they're supporting the doc space so that those films can have a platform without, you know, actually putting the films in there. I think it's savvy, all things considered, but I think it's going to be fascinating to see how it all plays out. So next week, uh, we'll see how AFI Fest goes, and I'm sure we'll have some more stuff to talk about. Maybe we'll have that Doc NYC shortlist to dig deeper into, and we'll have another two weeks before the election. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of anxieties that we can share. Until then, I hope you can hang it. My ballot's sent in. How about you, Eric? Well, it's not early voting yet in New York, but I can, I can tell you I've been calling a lot of people in states where it is, like Pennsylvania and Texas, and reminding them. So I'm going to stick I sent to that in my postcards. <laughs> in the postcards to voters. Very proud of you. One step at a time. All right. You got me started. The- Thank you. All right. Bye bye, guys. Have a good weekend. Lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.